So what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? We talk a lot here at Integrity about discipleship and about um, and being a disciple, discipling other people. What does that mean to, to really be a disciple of Jesus? Is it a list of stuff that we have to do? You know, is it, you know, you have to read, you know, this many verses or this many books? Do you have to read through the Bible every single year? Uh, do you have to memorize certain passages? Do you have to spend so many hours or, you know, a certain amount of time in prayer? Is that what it means to be a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus? Uh, well, this morning we're going to look uh, at what Jesus says, what true discipleship is, and also, what discipleship costs, because it is, um, it is costly. So uh, that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you'll remember from last week, uh, Jesus told a couple parables, and one of them, the, the last one in last week's section, was about a banquet. And if you remember, Ben talked about how oftentimes in, in the Gospels, uh, parables that Jesus tells are uh, parables about the kingdom of God. And, and last week's was no exception. Jesus tells this parable about a banquet that this master throws. And what he does is he sends invites to all of his friends. You know, come, we're going to have a party at my house on this day. And so he sends this invite out. And the people who he, he sent invitations to started to bail on him. They said, I, I, I can't go because of this. I can't go because of that. And Ben did a really great job of explaining what those things were and how, you know, we can often do that too. Uh, but um, so... the. In the parable, Jesus talks about how this master, after you know, all these people started bailing on him, he went out and said, okay, we'll invite everyone. Invite the sick and the lame and the poor. You go out to the streets and invite people in. And again, you know, parables are about the kingdom of God. It's not just about the story, but it's about the kingdom of God. And so, and if you remember from last week, Ben talked about how this is true, you know, Jesus is a Jew. He was a Jew, and, and God chose the Jewish people to bless the whole world through through the Messiah, and and that's that's what happened. And, and, and the Jews rejected Jesus in the Old Testament. They were rebellious and rejected Yahweh, the Father. And even in the Gospels, we see that the Jews continually reject Jesus and His teaching. And so what He does is, you know, He says, "Okay, well, you're going to bail on me. I'm going to go out and I'm going to invite everyone in, and everyone can be a part of my family now." And so he turns, and that's what last week's passage was, but this week he turns, and we're going to look at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. And so Jesus turns and starts to speak to the crowds that were following him. And this is, this is you know, worth noting because for the past few chapters, Jesus has been speaking to the Pharisees, and he's been nailing them. You know, if, if you just look back at some of the headings, um, you know, these aren't necessarily good things. Um, you know, lament over Jerusalem, the narrow door, you know, all these things that Jesus is talking about. He's speaking to the Pharisees, and now he turns and speaks to the crowds who were following him. So Jews, but also Gentiles as well. And so, and the reason he does this, and we're going to talk about discipleship, is he wants to, to say, yes, like I just said in this parable, everyone is invited to be a part of the family of God now. However, do not fool yourself into thinking that it's this easy thing. He wants to talk to us about what it costs on our part. And so, verse, uh, let's look at verse 26. He's going to, he's going to give us three things that, it, that um, discipleship costs us. So verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, 
Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, Jesus, did, did he really just say hate? Uh, Jesus is known for being the guy who said, you know, you're supposed to love your enemies. And that's, that's a really radical statement that we're supposed to love the people who hate us. And so is he saying that, yeah, I want you to love the people who hate you, but I want you to hate the people who love you the most, your family? No, no, that, of course, that's not what he's really saying. He's, he's using a hyperbole. Um, in high school, I thought this was pronounced hyperbole. Um, that's not right. It's hyperbole. And every time I see the word written, even this morning in my notes, I have to unthink the word hyperbole and have to think hyperbole. Um, and, and so that's what Jesus is doing here. And, I, and I hyperbole is intentionally exaggerating something in order to make a point. Now, of course, Jesus didn't know. Well, I guess he did know, but, you know, hyperbole didn't exist at that time. But this idea of exaggerating something to make a point you know, is something that was really common, and that's what he's doing here. Of course, he's not saying that you should hate your family. He wants you to love everyone. But what he's saying is he's making a comparison. Your love for Jesus, when compared to the love that you have for the people around you, especially your family, should look like hate. Uh, I've been married for, coming up on four years now, to my wife, Kate. And the more, the longer I'm married and the more I get to know her, the, the more and more blessed I feel. Uh, after the gospel, she is the second greatest gift that I've ever been given. Uh, she has many strengths, and I have many weaknesses, and so she compliments me very well. And um, it's the same, you know, she has a few weaknesses as well, and I have a, a couple strengths, and so I compliment her really well, too. Um, and she really is just a, a, a wonderful gift to me in my life, and I love her so much. And I didn't know the depth of love I would feel for someone until, you know, three and a half years, almost four years into marriage. And Jesus is telling me that I'm supposed to hate her. Well, in comparison to my love for him, it should look like hate. Now, we don't have any children. Uh, God willing, we, we hope to have kids sometime soon. Um, but for those of you who do have kids, I, I can't imagine the love that you feel for them. Just yesterday, we were... We were in Wake Forest, where we used to live seeing some friends, and, and in our last small group, we went there, and they have like a million kids. They have like a dozen kids in their small group now. And so we were having dinner with them, hanging out, and I love those kids. Like, I, you know, think about, okay, if something happened to them, how would I feel? That would crush me, and I can't imagine if it's your own child, what that would feel like. You know, if, if something happened to them. And, and so the, the depth and gra- the, the greatness of your love that you have for your children is something you probably can't fully grasp until you have children. And so what Jesus is saying here is that, you know, you're supposed to, supposed to hate your family, even your kids. You're supposed to love Jesus so much that even your love for your children looks like hatred because of the depth of your love for Jesus. And that's a hard pill to swallow. Oftentimes we can idolize our family. We can idolize our children. And that's something that, you know, even me in my own life, I have to constantly check, am I idolizing Kate? Do I care more about what, you know, she thinks than what Jesus thinks? You know, do I care more about pleasing her than I do pleasing Christ? And that's something that we have to constantly check about ourselves. And so when you come and become a disciple of Jesus, 
you are saying that I'm going to love Christ so much that the love I have for my family looks like hatred. So that's the first point. That's the first thing that Jesus says here. And then we're going to go on to verse 27. The second thing. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Because the cross was an instrument of, of execution. This was something that the Romans perfected. And it was a way that, you know, it, it was the, for the vilest of the vile. You know, the, only the worst people went and were crucified. And, and that says a lot because Jesus was crucified for us. But uh, this was something that if you were put on the cross 99.9% of the time, you were going to die. And, and the people who Jesus is talking to here would have realized that. They would have known that. And so when he tells them that you, uh, whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so a lot of times when we hear this, we, we look at this verse and we think about this concept and we sort of trivialize it. And you know, we talk about, oh, this is just my cross to bury. And it's like, you know, I have a thorn in my flesh, like a literal like thorn, like a, a small ailment that we, you know, we make it so much bigger than it really is. This is my cross to bury. Jesus here, I mean, that's true. You know, you might have difficulties in your life that you do have to deal with. But he's talking about martyrdom. You know, it's pretty clear. If you're put on the cross, you're going to die 99.9% of the time. And so he's saying, if you're not willing to die for me, you cannot be my disciple. And so does that mean, you know, this is something we have to check. Again, Jesus is talking in a hyperbolic type of language. Uh, does, so do you think he means that, okay, if you reject me, reject me if you don't, you know, proclaim my name when you're given the opportunity that you can't be my disciple? Well, no, no, no of course not. Uh, in the early church, uh, Nero came to power, and some, some Roman emperors came to power who hated Christians and who would um, persecute Christians. Nero was known for even lighting his garden with uh, the flames that were engulfing the body of Christians. So he hated Christians. He persecuted them. And so Christianity, the church during this time, you know, it... Nero and his people would ask you, are you a believer? If you renounce the name of Christ, you won't be persecuted. You won't be killed. And so they had the option, okay, I'm going to say, yes, I'm a Christian, or no, I'm not a Christian. And so they were given the opportunity, and some of them did renounce the name of Christ. But eventually, some, you know, some of those bad emperors you know, got out of power, and some ones who were more friendly to Christians came into power. And so the church had this question they had to deal with, do we allow those people back into the church who rejected Christ during that time of suffering, during that difficult time? And there's a big debate over it. Now, you know, if we look in Scripture, which is always the best thing to do, what does the Bible say? Can we think of anyone who rejected Jesus but was allowed back into the church? Peter. Yeah, he, I think he rejected Jesus once. No, no, it was, no, it was three times. He rejected Christ three times. And not only was he allowed back in the church, he was the foundation, he was the rock on which the church was built. And so I'm not saying that if you reject Christ, if your coworker, you know, brings up a conversation to you where you have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to them and you don't proclaim the gospel, I'm not saying that you can't be his disciple. However, if you consistently, you know, if you never proclaim Christ, if you never tell other people about what God has done for you in your life, then you're likely not the disciple. Because what happens when we become a disciple, when we become a Christian, God gives us a new heart. And when we have a new heart, we are going to do things that please Him. 
if you consistently walk in a way that doesn't please him, we have to wonder, maybe you don't have a new heart. And so that's, and that's what Jesus is, is you know, bringing up here as well. And so now Jesus goes into two stories. So he wants people to examine their heart. He wants to, people to question their motives. Am I ready to do this? Am I ready to become a disciple of Jesus? And so in verse 28, he tells the first of two stories. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Um, this tower that was, that was going to be built that Jesus is talking about, this wasn't like a... You know, a living room or a bedroom. It was this extra piece of, um, this extra thing that would build on their land that might be a lookout, that they would, you know, make sure nothing's happening in the vineyard or the, or the garden or anything like that. Uh, so it wasn't something absolutely necessary. It'd be a place where they could store equipment or stuff like that. And so um, it's important to understand it's not like a main structure of the house. It was just this extra thing that they wanted to build and did. Uh, when I was in a, when I, was in seminary. I worked a couple different jobs. One at the YMCA. The other one was a handyman. I actually worked for a handyman business, and for about a year. And for the first probably six or eight months, I did bookkeeping. You know, I, I sent bills out. I received bills. I balanced the checkbook. I reconciled stuff. Really boring stuff. Um, to you CPAs, I, I apologize. You know, I just meant to work boring. But uh, me personally, I, I could do it all my life. And so uh, I, I asked my boss, could I get out there and do some field work? So he said yes, and so I saw both ends of that business. I saw the bookkeeping end. I watched my boss do estimates and stuff like that, and then I also went out and did the work myself. We, we you know, repaired houses and, and roofs and stuff like that. And so I would sit and watch my boss do an estimate. So he would go out to someone's house who, let's say, they needed to replace a section of the roof. And so he would go and he would say, okay, well, you know, it's this much area that needs to be to be replaced, and so it's going to take this many, you know, uh, bundles of shingles to replace it, and it's going to cost this much to purchase the nails that we have to drive the shingles with, and, and so he would go through and he would line item every single thing that he had to purchase in order to complete this job. He would say, okay, I think it's going to take this many man hours, and we have to bill this high because the taxes are this high, and so he was meticulous about saying this is how much this project is going to cost, and if you own a business or if you're involved in a business like that, you understand the necessity of counting the cost because if you don't count it, we almost went on a business more than once because you know some cash flow issues, we, we didn't have on hand what we needed. We didn't count the cost properly. And that's what Jesus is encouraging us and these people to do, that you need to count the cost. You need to make sure that you have what it takes that you are able to complete this task. So it applies for discipleship as well. Uh, David Siegel he is the, I think I pronounced that right, Siegel, is the CEO and president of Westgate Resorts, this uh, huge resort hotel chain. He's based down in Florida, so he's the CEO, so he's a millionaire. He's just got tons and tons of money. And he built his dream home, or what I would assume would be his dream home, because here are the stats on it. It was a 13-bedroom, 23-bathroom. I don't know why you need almost twice as many bathrooms, like full bathrooms, like shower and everything, then you need bedrooms, but... He wanted it, so he did. Uh, he had a 20-car garage. He had three pools. Uh, not one, not two. Two couldn't cut it, so we got a third. 
Um, and he had a two-story wine cellar. This place was a <laughs> mansion. And uh, in 2008, when the economy really started going bad, when it really started getting really bad, uh, he had to stop production because he realized, I can't, I can't complete this project. And you can, I think the starting, the asking price of it now is $75 million, um, and that's unfinished. You can pay another $25 million to get it completed for you. Um, Kate and I were thinking about putting an offer in uh, on my church planting residency salary. I think the mortgage would be about uh, 300 years, 300-year mortgage. Uh, I know, Matt, that's not what uh, Dave Ramsey says to do, um, but you know, we're considering um, if you go on Google now, uh, don't do it right now, do it later, and, and Google search for abandoned mansions or unfinished mansions, you'll find story after story of people who had these you know, outrageous dreams. They wanted this humongous house, and, and so they started building it, and they, they couldn't finish it because they didn't count the cost. They didn't have the funds in place to complete this project, and they are ridiculed online for it. You know, they're just made fun of. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you need to make sure that you can finish this this race, you know, the Christian life, Paul talks about, this is, this is not a sprint, this is a marathon, this takes a long time to continue to plod on in discipleship. And so Jesus <laughs> is, is, you know, challenging them, and he's challenging us as well, to count the cost, see if you can finish. And the second parable that Jesus tells is in verse 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Okay, so this, this is, like I said, the second parable of, of two. And it differs from the first one because the first one, the, the man has an option. He can, you know, he hasn't, if he hasn't started yet, he can say, yes, I'm going to, you know, pay the money. I'm going to build this tower. Or you could say, you know, maybe he does start to count the costs and he says, you know, we really can't afford this this season. Maybe we'll wait one or two seasons and then we can pay for it. But he has the ability to say yes or no. We're, going to, we're not going to do it or we are going to do it. And in the second illustration, this king, he doesn't have a choice. He ha- he's a king of a land. He's got an army of 10,000 people. And he gets word that another army of 20,000 people is coming after him. You know, maybe he, he unfollowed him on Twitter, and so uh, he didn't like that. So their king is going to you know, go after him and see what the deal is and knock on his door at 20,000 troops. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. The, the text doesn't say what it was. Um, but so this king has to make a decision. You know, he, he's got to say, okay, we're either, you know, we got 10,000 troops, they have 20. My guys aren't really that good. So we're going to go make terms of peace. Or... You know, I, I think we can take him. You know, we're Spartans. Of course we can take him. Something like that. This king is forced into a decision. He has to, he has to make the decision. Am I going to, you know, fight on or am I, am I going to give up, give terms of peace? And so these two stories illustrate discipleship in this way. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a disciple of Christ. Maybe you're not a Christian. You don't know uh, Jesus. You haven't trusted him with your life. Uh, you're the first one. You know, maybe you hear the story of the gospel that you know Jesus, being a perfect son of the perfect son of God, was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect, sinless life that we should have lived, 
and he died a bloody, gruesome death on the cross that we should have died. And he rose again three days later. And if you place your faith and trust in him and his work on the cross was sufficient for you to make you right before God, then you can, that's how you become a disciple. That's the gospel. So maybe you hear that story of, of peace and forgiveness. And I want that. You know, you think, I really want that. But, you know, I don't really want to love Jesus more than my family. I don't want to count the cost. I don't want to suffer even unto death. Then you can count the cost. You have the opportunity to say, yes, I'm going to do this, or no, I'm not going to do this. And the second parable speaks to people who are disciples. When a situation comes in your, you know, in your path, you have the opportunity to say, I'm going to plot on, I'm going to, I'm going to put my nose to the grindstone, and I'm going to do what I know God wants me to do. Or, I'm going to give terms of peace. I'm going to give up. And that's how, you know, so you're presented with the option. You have to do something. You know, a lot of times we hear stories about uh, backslidden Christians, right? If you've been a Christian for any long length of time, you probably know someone who uh, was what you thought once a Christian, but now they're not. I went to a Christian high school. And one of my friends, uh, my senior year in high school, we went to the Dominican Republic on a missions trip. And we played soccer with some with kids and baseball with kids and, and uh, did service projects with orphans and stuff. And it was a really incredible time and growing time for me in my life and my walk with Christ. And I remember sitting with many of my teammates and just weeping over and just being broken over their poverty and but yet their love for the gospel and their love for Christ. And wanting that level of devotion, that love as well. And one of my friends who was on that trip, I saw him weep. I saw him cry and call out to God and thank God for his salvation. And that was in you know, 2004. And now, fast forward eight years, you know, now he is a very different person. He, uh, you know, friends with him on Facebook and he talks about how Christians are ignorant, how Christians are stupid, and uh, he, can't, he can't believe that he used to be to believe that stuff. Um, now, the Bible talks about in 1 John how um, people who were among us but left us, they were never truly of us because those who are of us will never leave. And so what that means is that, you know, what I talked about the gospel, when you receive the gospel, God gives you a new heart. The Old Testament in Ezekiel talks about how before salvation, before God comes into your life, you have a heart of stone. But when, now we know when, when you come to Jesus, he takes out that heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh and gives you a heart that loves God, loves the things that God loves. And so when you have a new heart, you will not love your sin. You will not continue in disobedience, not because you have to do these things in order to get a new heart, but because when you have a new heart, you simply won't love those things anymore. And so that's what you know John is talking about in First John, that um, if, if you have a new heart, if you're truly a believer, then you're not going to leave. And you know, I, I pray for my friend. I pray for him that he will come back to the church. He'll come back. And, and you know, maybe he is just living in sin and uh, he, he has a new heart. And maybe God's convicting him and maybe he'll come back. And that's what I hope. Or maybe he'll come back and realize, you know, I said these things. I played the part, but I wasn't a, a true believer. But I, I, I pray for him and pray for your friends who you've seen walk away from the faith as well. But be encouraged if you are a disciple that, you know, like, uh, like it says in, in the New Testament, God is, uh, 
He will always complete what he sets out to start. He will not leave you by yourself. And in, uh, in verse 33, he sets out, he, he said the first two things, you can't love your family more than you love Jesus. And then he said, you have to be willing to suffer for me. And then he says this third thing in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Okay, so does, does this mean that we can't have anything? Uh, I'm not really gifted uh, with numbers. I'm not a real detail-oriented person. So I had a CPA do my taxes for me this year. And uh, she called me the other day and asked me, um, uh, have you taken a vow of poverty for you know, being ordained minister? And I thought about my salary, and I said, maybe. Uh, what does it take to, to, to take a vow of poverty? And she was like, well, you, know, you don't get paid for anything you do. Um, you know, you just live on gifts that other people give you. You can't own anything. And I was like, well, almost. No, I don't need that, though. No, we have a house here. But um, and some people have taken this scripture and interpreted that way, that you can't own anything and be a true disciple of Jesus. And you, know, you think about monks who go out in the desert and, uh, and you know, hurt themselves and, and you know, don't hardly ever eat. And, uh, and that's, what, you know, that's how they have interpreted this verse, that you can't own anything. You have to renounce everything to be his disciple. Well, again, you know, Jesus is speaking in a hyperbole. He's not saying that you literally have to get rid of everything that you own. What he's saying is that you cannot love your stuff more than you love your Savior. And guys, that's really hard to hear in America. You can literally cross this street and go to Walmart and buy anything you want. I mean, you name it. You, you can get food there. You can get clothes there. You can get electronic stuff there. You can get hunting stuff there, fishing. I mean, literally anything you can think of, you can probably get it at Walmart. And so it's really easy to fall into consumerism, into materialism in America. And so what, God is, what Jesus is saying here is that you can't love that stuff more than you love me. You know, where do you find your true satisfaction? Is it in Jesus and his salvation that he gives to you? Or is it in the stuff that you have? You know, I'm guilty of, of this at times. I have to continually check my heart. I'm, I'm a gadget guy. I love, I'm on gadget vlogs all the time looking at the iPhone 5 that's coming out. You know, maybe this summer or maybe in the winter. The iPad 3 wasn't everything we thought it was going to be. You know, I'm a gadget guy. I'm there. And so I have to continually check my heart. Am I trying to find my satisfaction in my stuff rather than my Savior? And, uh, and God puts people in my life who help me. You know, Kate, my wife again, I'll bring her up again, is, uh, you know, she's not materialistic like I am. So she really helps me and she helps check my heart. Okay, you care about this stuff way too much. And that's just another way God's gifted me in her. And that's how, you know, he might work in all of our lives, giving, giving us someone who is able to check us. But you can't love the stuff that you have. Maybe you don't struggle with materialism. That you know you don't care about having the latest and greatest, whatever. But maybe you you worry and you stress about your job. Am I going to lose my job? Wait, well, you know when Jesus says renounce all that you have, he doesn't just mean this the stuff that we don't really need. He also means he, he's, everything means everything. You know, it, we have to trust and rely on Him to give us everything, even you know our, our salary that pays for our food and pays for our housing and pays for our clothes and and uh, 
Maybe you struggle and you worry and you don't believe that Jesus is going to meet your every single need like he promised he would. So maybe you don't struggle like that. You may struggle like that. So you need to trust and believe that, that God said, God is going to do what he said he's going to do in providing everything that you need. So we think back, you know, think about the gospel. The gospel is a free gift that you receive by faith from Jesus. And, you know, thinking about this list of three things, it, you know, if you, if you look at it the wrong way, it could look like stuff you have to do. You know, you can't be a disciple of Jesus um, unless you, you know, don't love your, your family. You can't be his disciple unless you suffer. And so maybe you try to, this is what suffering is. I have to do these things or I have to not do these things. Well, hey, the gospel is, is 100% faith. None of it, you cannot do anything to get it. It's given to you freely by God. And so when we think about what the cost of discipleship is, it's not what we have to do. We only do these things. We only are disciples because of, again, the new heart that we have in Christ. When you have a new heart, you will love Jesus more than you love your family. You won't idolize your family. You will be willing to suffer for Jesus because he suffered for you on the cross. And you won't love your stuff more than you love your Savior. To think that, you know, I think about how ridiculous it is that I struggle with materialism. To think that I care more about technology than the creator God who in one instant created everything that has ever existed. You know, it sounds ridiculous to me, but, you know, I'm sinful. I fall into that. But thank God that he, he forgives and he takes away the sinful desires and, and uh, and helps us to continue to put our faith and trust in Him and be satisfied in Him and in the gospel. So what does discipleship cost? Well, it's different for different people. You know, maybe um, being a true disciple of Jesus for you means that you have to sacrifice something big. Maybe a job or a promotion. You know, maybe you think, okay, well, if I could get promoted to this position, I could make this many dollars. Or, you know, I could get this prestigious you know, position or whatever. And, uh, and maybe getting in that position, getting that promotion will hinder your ability to disciple other people, to walk in life with other people. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you can't be a true disciple of Jesus because you're in a bad relationship right now. You know, your boyfriend or girlfriend or even fiance <laughs> is, uh, you know, is hindering your ability to glorify Jesus and, and the ways that you need to, there, you know, could be could be a lot of different ways. But discipleship costs a lot because it costs Jesus a lot. So take time to reflect and think about, okay, what is it going to cost me if I truly want to continue to walk in discipleship? What if what is it going to cost me if I continually want to grow in Christ? And then Jesus in verse thirty four and thirty five moves on. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay, so why does Jesus move on and start talking about salt after he's been talking about discipleship? Well, salt in, in, in his time period was used for many different things. They would use it to season food like we do, uh, make stuff taste better. 
they would also use it for preservation. They would put it on meat and put it on different foods so the food would last longer so they could enjoy it and, and they could eat it for longer. It was also, like Jesus says, was put with manure to help the soil, to, to make the soil more fertile so it would produce more crops. And so salt was very useful. If you had a lot of salt, that was a good thing because you use it for a lot of different stuff. However, their salt wasn't quite as refined. It wasn't quite as, um, as good as ours because their salt would go bad, literally. It would, it would lose its saltiness. And it, it took up space. They couldn't put it in manure. They couldn't use it for food. They couldn't use it for cooking. They couldn't use it for anything. They literally, it literally took up space. So they had to throw it away. And it was completely useless. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus consistently talks about the church, about believers being the salt and light of the earth. And so what he's saying is that, you know, you do not lose your saltiness. Do not lose your, your usefulness um, because you will be discarded. Um, and that's, that's something, something hard to grasp at times. And, and so we are the salt. And again, what he's saying is that you know, you will be discarded if you're not useful. And again, we have to we have to think about this in in the language that Jesus is using. So does that mean that if I once was salt, I will become not salt someday? If I'm a believer, that I can lose my salvation? No, that's that's not that's not what we mean. Again, when you have a new heart in Jesus, you will consistently grow in Christ. You will consistently be salt to the earth. But he's giving a warning to those who think they might be believers, but might not be true believers, might not be walking in the gospel. He's giving a warning. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, this is just a way to say, hey, think about this. Take time, reflect, and think about what I'm saying to you here. So what does discipleship cost? Well, it costs a lot. It costs Jesus a lot. And what we have to think about is, really, we can't do any of this stuff on our own. You know, I can't love Jesus more than my wife or, and sometimes, my ch- someday, my children without the power of the gospel, without Jesus living in me and helping me to live for him. I can't be willing to suffer without the Holy Spirit living in me. I can't love Jesus more than my stuff without him. And, and so it's all, it all goes back to him. It all goes back to his his power, his death and resurrection. Jesus was the true and perfect disciple. He loved his Father in heaven more than he loved his family. He, he loved the Father and the mission that his Father gave him more than he loved comfort. He literally bore his own cross and died for us in our place. He was willing to suffer to death to, to love and obey the Father. And he loved his father more than he loved stuff. He said, you know, he said he was homeless. He said, you know, birds of the air have nests and fox have holes, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He was homeless. So he was the true, the perfect embodiment of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And we can't do it without his power. So none of this, if you, if you are a disciple now, a true disciple, it's not by anything you've done. And if you hope to be one day a true disciple consistently walks in Jesus, it's not going to be through anything that you do. It's only going to be through the power that Jesus gives you. So, again, I'll ask you, if, if you're not a disciple, if you don't believe in the gospel, have faith. 
ask God to give you faith that you would believe in the gospel and his resurrection that gives you power. And if you are a disciple, pray that God would help you to continue to walk in him through difficult times and that you would glorify him through all. Let's pray.